You are listening to the audio podcast of Gethsemane Baptist Church, located in Long Beach, California, pastored by Eli Reynolds. All God's people said, amen, after that, goodness, I love songs about heaven and just thinking about so much that goes into heaven, the victory that we will have, you know, in heaven and the rejoicing and the reunion and there's so much to it and uh, so thank you so much for singing that. I want you to take your Bibles today, I give a couple of announcements as you're turning to 2 Samuel chapter 21, 2 Samuel chapter 21. We do have uh, our communion right after the morning service today, and uh, so I hope you'll stick around for that. And uh, with this meeting tonight, uh, I think it's going to be in the uh, home builder's room, is that correct? So the meeting for the, what's it called? The country fair will be in the uh, home builder's room, just right on the hallway to the right here, and uh, if you can help with that. And we need, we need help. We're trying to get Bibles and tracts along with candy and things to the folks in our community and uh, it's just a great opportunity. We, we have people doing uh, signs on the street. There's security detail. There's a parking lot. I'm the guy waving people on the parking lot. There's booths to be done. If you could help, uh, that would be great. And uh, so if you can make that meeting. Also, two weeks ago, we had an incredible ministry expo. And, uh, and, and I want to just follow up with you. We're still putting a lot of things together in regards to some new ministries we're starting. So we're, we're starting to have all these meetings and things, but I want to let you know we're working on it. We're going to be contacting you very soon, probably this week, with some more information about the ministries that you signed up for. And looking forward to getting some of these things started. Some are already started and just kind of uh, kind of refresh some things. But if you were not here for the Ministry Expo two weeks ago and you'd like some information about some of the ministries that we currently have or that we're starting, uh, we're not putting the whole expo on again today. But on the back table as you're leaving by the glass doors over there, uh, we'll, we'll have the sheets of information for each ministry that we passed out. They'll be on the table there. And I'm going to try to get over there. I have several people to talk to after church. But... But I want to get over there and be able to answer any questions you may have about some of the ministries that are there. So if you have any questions, see me. If you want to just take some of those papers about information about the different ministries, if you didn't happen to be here for the Ministry Expo, that, that will work too, okay? And you can let me know some other time if you have questions, if I'm not available, all right? 2 Samuel chapter 21 in your Bibles today. And I had another message that I felt like I was going to preach. It was... Uh, it was, I think, an encouraging message, and, and I, just, I could, not, could not get peace about that message for this service. And uh, so God had just brought this uh, thought to my mind recently, so uh, in the last couple of days. And so I was spending some time getting this ready, and I hope it's a blessing to you today. And uh, it'll sound, at first, a little discouraging, but it ends in an encouraging way, so stay with me, all right? 2 Samuel 21, in verse 1, the Bible gives us a story here that you're probably not super familiar with, if I'm just being honest. Uh, it's kind of one of those obscure stories in the Bible that, that really doesn't get preached about a whole lot, but it's, it's, it's very important. And I want you to see some things here. In verse 1, then there was a famine in the days of David three years. By the way, this is after the rebellion of Absalom. This is later on in David's life, towards the end of his life. So there was a famine in the days of David, three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, it's for Saul. So the famine came because of Saul. 
Saul had been dead 30 years. So it's for Saul. And for his bloody house, because he slew the Gibeonites. Who's that? We're going to talk about it in a minute. And the king called the Gibeonites and said to them, Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the children of Israel had sworn unto them, and Saul sought to slay them in his zeal to the children of Israel and Judah. Wherefore David said unto the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And wherewith shall I make the atonement that ye may bless the inheritance of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said unto him, we, have no, we, will, we will have no silver nor gold of Saul nor of his house, neither for us shalt thou kill any man in Israel. And he said, what ye shall say, that I will do for you. So David is trying to make some things right. And so they're going to ask David something that they will believe sets right the debt that they are owed by Saul. What do they ask? Look at verse number five. And they answer the king, the man that consumed us, Saul, and that devised against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the coasts of Israel, let seven men of his sons be delivered unto us, and we will hang them up unto the Lord in Gibeah of Saul. Gallows. Going to literal hanging, okay? And, uh, and, and it says there in verse 5, the device, uh, verse 6, I'm sorry, in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord did choose. So, so they said, okay, here's what we want. We, we want seven men of Saul. What's amazing is the next part, and it says there, and the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, who we talked about a couple weeks ago, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath was between, that was between them and between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. But the, Lord, but the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bare unto Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, which was a different Mephibosheth. Can you believe there were two people named Mephibosheth in the same family? And the five sons of Michael, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Meholathite. Now, now we think, oh, that's the, the Michael that, that David married. It is the Michael that David married, but it's not her legitimate children. It was the children she brought up for her sister, who was married to Adriel. So it wasn't Michael's actual children, because you remember, Michael was told, you're not going to have kids, you know, after all that had happened there. So um, th- that's, the, that's the explanation there. And he delivered them, in verse 9, to the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them in the hill before the Lord. And they fell all seven together and were put to death in the days of harvest, in the, uh, in the days of harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of barley harvest. Now there is an interesting rest of the story there and how the mom stays with the bodies. David allows them to be buried with Saul. There's this whole beautiful thing there, but that's not where I'm going. I want to focus in on this first part of the story here. Very interesting story. You know, we don't hear uh, anything about this story in Scripture. What I mean by that is we don't hear about Saul and what he did to the Gibeonites in any other passage. It's not recorded exactly what happened with Saul and the Gibeonites, but it pretty much tells us what happened here. And we're going to look at it for a little bit, and uh, I'll give you the title in just a few minutes here. But I want to tell you the story first here and explain it. Who were the Gibeonites? The Gibeonites, if you'll remember, uh, back to Joshua chapter number 9. You don't have to turn there, but because I'm sure you all have Joshua chapter 9 memorized. But... Just kidding. 
In Joshua chapter 9, you remember that the children of Israel were, were coming through the land of Canaan and emptying out the people of the land there, eradicating them because of their continual idol worship and baby sacrifices and all of that. And God had given Israel the land of Canaan. And so Israel starts coming through and they lay waste to Jericho. After a little hiccup, they lay waste to Ai. And you know what happens is that people start hearing about it. And so the Gibeonites were the people that came to Joshua and with their clothes rent and the stale bread and the wine in their bottles that were old. And they said, hey, we, we heard about you guys. We're from a faraway country and we heard about what you're doing and, and we don't want to be destroyed. Make a league with us that you won't kill us. And so Joshua does not confer with the Lord. The princes of Israel do not confer with the Lord. And so they make a league with him. They make an agreement. Hey, all right, guys, we won't, we, won't, we won't take you guys out. Like two or three days later, they get news that the Gibeonites are not far away. They're your neighbors in the new country that you're living in. And you were supposed to take them out too. But because they made that rule, Joshua was said, okay, we can't go back on this. We said, now they're going to be servants to Israel. They're going to, they're going to work and, and, and they'll, they'll be with us, but they'll be serving with us. That's who the Gibeonites are. And so look, if you would, here at chapter 21, and it says that there was a famine in the land. And that means that there was suffering. That means innocent people are, are, are going without food and water. That means, you know, you know what a famine brings to a land. Just imagine that. Back in the day, they didn't have a Walmart to go to. They didn't have a, the Target grocery section. They didn't have a Food for Less or a Costco. There was problems with the production, the agriculture there, when there was a famine. And, and so innocent people are suffering. Innocent people that did not commit murder of, of the Gibeonites are suffering through this. Look at verse number one. It also says there that uh, David inquired of the Lord. So uh, it took David about three years, but he finally realized, I think this is God doing something here. So he goes to God and says, God, is this judgment upon our land? And God says, yes, it is. And he says in verse one there that it is for Saul and for his bloody house because he slew the Gibeonites. So Saul murdered these people, verse 2, but why? So then the king called the Gibeonites and said to them, now it gives us a parenthetical thought here, there's a parenthesis. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel. It's interesting is that Saul had family that were Gibeonites, but they weren't of the children of Israel. But of the remnant of the Amorites, so there's two different groups of Gibeonites there, and the children of Israel had sworn unto them and Saul sought to slay them in his zeal to the children of Israel and Judah. Verse 5 tells us that the men of Gibeonites, the Gibeonites said, The man that consumed us and that devised against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the coasts of Israel. So Saul is murdering these people in his zeal for, so to speak, the honor of Israel. What he was really trying to do was root out outsiders. He came in and said, hey, we see all these people here that, that, you know, in the book of Joshua, the book of Judges, they let all these outsiders come into our land, and I want to prove how zealous and how passionate I am for Israel, so I'm going to remove all the foreigners out of here, and I'm going to eradicate them out of our land. In his zeal, he did that. Now, I don't think it was good motives. Saul, you can't, it's hard to argue that Saul ever had good motives, maybe at the very beginning of his life, but here's the point. Saul killed innocent people. Here's the point. Saul killed protected people. Protected people, why? Because Joshua vowed to them, you can stay. 
And it says there in, in chapter, verse 2, that, that the children of Israel had sworn unto them. They had been told, you're protected in our land. And when Saul comes in, in his passion or, or zeal, so to speak, he decides to go back on those promises, just like he intruded into the priest's office, and just like he uh, uh, hard-headedly did a bunch of other stuff, he decides, I'm going to just eradicate these people, which were a protected people. Now, so what happens because of that? God tells David in verse 3 to go to the Gibeonites, and, uh, and God sent him to go get it right with the Gibeonites. In verse 4, what did they ask for? They say here that uh, we, we will have no silver nor gold. They didn't want money. They, they had an opportunity here to say, we want freedom, but they didn't even ask for that. They wanted to stay with Israel, but they said, we, we don't want David, we don't want silver, we don't want gold. You know why? Because, uh, as one commentator said, money is no satisfaction for blood. Look, there, there is no price upon a person's head that's worth it. Blood for blood has been called for since Genesis 9-6 in the Bible. And we should, we, we should take this to realize that we should never undervalue human life. No amount of money is worth it. No amount of money. And they said, David, we don't want money. And then they said this in verse 4, neither for us shalt thou kill any man. David, we don't want you to get your hands dirty. We don't want you killing anybody. But what we want to make it right. This man who tried to kill every one of us, this man who killed our men and our women, our children, this man, we want seven of his men, seven of his family. Since he killed all of our family, we want seven of his family, blood for blood, atonement for, uh, for, for injustice. We want that to settle the debt. Now, nowadays, this is probably not too much how it happens, but this is how it was happening then. And that's what they asked. They asked for seven descendants, and David agreed Two of the men were, were Saul's sons from a concubine. Seven of them were grandsons of Saul. Now we may look at that story and think, well, that isn't fair. Sin is never fair. Sin wasn't fair. Saul's sin wasn't fair to all the people that he murdered who were sworn to that they would be protected. And the very people that swore to protect him were the people, uh, Saul, that, that, uh, that same group of people anyway, as far as the Israelites, they killed them. Innocent people are always hurt by sin. Innocent people are always hurt by sin. And by the way, can I just say this before I pray and give you a couple of thoughts this morning? No one is truly innocent. No one is truly innocent. Why? We may be innocent of that sin. We may be innocent of murdering someone. We may be innocent of stealing that thing. Or we may be innocent of a certain thing, but we're not innocent because we've done other stuff. So no one is truly innocent here, but we're guilty of something. But the point is this, Saul sinned and others paid the price. Saul sinned and his descendants paid the price. Saul sinned and the Gibeonites paid the price. Saul sinned and the people of Israel paid the price and the people of the nation around them paid the price because of the famine. You know what all of those people were? All of those people were the collateral damage of one man's sin. I want to preach a message entitled Collateral Damage this morning. I want to talk to you about that a little bit. Father, I pray that you bless these next few minutes we have in this service this morning. I pray you have your way in our hearts. I pray that we'd be convicted. I pray that we'd be comforted. I pray that we'd have a wide range of emotions, of, but, but be able to zero in on what you want for our lives today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. 
You may have read the, uh, saw on the news yesterday about a soccer riot in Indonesia. First of all, I don't understand why people get so bent out of shape about soccer. I, I, don't, I don't even understand. Like, maybe they're just mad at how boring it is. I don't know. But, but if you watch the story, it was an absolute tragedy. It was an, now, I, I will watch the World Cup, okay, so just so you know. But uh, if you read the story, what happened is the, the home team in Indonesia, whatever it was, starts with an A, I don't remember the name of it, they lost for the first time in years at their home stadium. So every logical, level-headed fan decided to do the most logical, level-headed thing. They rioted. They stormed the field. Now, the, the police, the FIFA, I think it is, which is the organization that oversees soccer, they have said that tear gas should never be used in a stadium. They used tear gas. The, the police officers fired tear gas into the crowd. I don't know enough about it to say whether that was right or wrong. I have no idea. But they fired the tear gas. It caused a stampede of people. 174 people died. Children, two officers that they know of, 10 or 11 are in, are in critical condition, 100 more are in the hospital with, with uh, devastating injuries. You know what that was? There were so many people that were sitting in there trying to watch a game, trying to enjoy their team, and because of some knuckle-headed people, now they, their life became the collateral damage of someone else's bad decisions. When we talk about collateral damage, what is it? In the dictionary, collateral damage is injury inflicted on something other than the intended target. It's like you shoot a bullet and you hit someone, but it goes through and hits somebody else. You intended it for one person, but it hit the next. And, and so that other person is collateral damage. I think we understand the concept of it. It was meant for one person, but it affected somebody else. It was meant for one thing, but it affected everything else. That is collateral damage. And can I tell you that sin always has collateral damage. It always does. Sin always has consequences. And by the way, God punishes every sin. You think, do, do we honestly think sometimes that, that God's not going to punish sin? Every sin. Why? Because he's just. He may punish it through Jesus Christ on the cross and his sacrifice. But I tell you, God punishes every sin. And every sin has consequences. But can I tell you, sometimes those punishments affect other people. I want to talk about, just really quickly here, some different types of collateral damage. First of all, I want you to see this. There is collateral damage that you can cause. There is collateral damage that you can cause. The universal truth that we see beginning in Genesis chapter 3 is that sin has consequences. In Genesis chapter 3 we see that. What's the story in Genesis chapter 3? Anybody? Genesis 3. Adam and Eve, the fall of mankind, the fall. Adam and Eve sinned, think with me now, Adam and Eve sinned, Eve takes the fruit, she gives it to Adam. So now he's affected, and then what happens? Because then they're kicked out of the garden, but the problem doesn't stop with them. The sin is not isolated with them. What happens? Every single person after them has been plunged into a fallen nature because of their sin. Talk about collateral damage. I mean, every one of us. Now, by the way, if we were in that situation, we probably would have made the exact same decision. But I'm, so I'm not casting too much upon them. But it, it, the collateral damage has affected every person that's ever lived on the planet. Here's the thing. You 
cannot control the ripples of sin. You can't control it. Well, I'll sin, but it won't affect anyone. You don't get to control that. That's a God thing. Your sin, when we, you throw a rock into the lake, you don't control how the ripples go. When we decide to actively participate in sin, we don't decide who gets affected by that and who doesn't. You can't control the ripples of sin. You can never say it was a victimless crime. Because there are always unintended consequences. There is always collateral damage. Our sins absolutely affect people around us. And they affect the people around us that are closest to us the most. You know, if you think about a grenade, if you took a grenade, and I'm not trying to be morbid or macabre, but if you, when a grenade goes off, of course the, por- the person holding it, their life's destroyed. But you know who it hurts the most after that? It hurts the most the people that are closest to it. And when we sin, when we do something, we live in a certain way with unconfessed sin, unrepented of sin, sin that we just refuse to deal with, we are causing damage to those closest to us first, and the ripples spread out further. Our sin even affects people we'll never meet. Say, how is that true? Because your sin can affect the people that you were supposed to witness to. The people you were supposed to, when you didn't give to the missionaries, and they could have gone, it, it affects people there. You're, our sin that when we, we, we didn't knock on that door because we were too busy being hung over, whatever it may be, those sins affect other people. Uh, you know, uh, not praying means that maybe somebody doesn't hear the gospel that should. Not living like a Christian may confirm in somebody's mind at work that, oh yeah, all Christianity is fake, because that Christian's not living for God. Look at that, I knew it was fake. Your pornography addiction is, is, is hurting other people. Your anger issue is hurting other people. Your kids, your spouse, your family, your coworkers, your drinking is affecting other people. Your abusive behavior is affecting other people. Your bitterness in your heart that you hold on to will not let go of and will not forgive. That's hurting other people too. Not only yourself, but others. Your hatred that you live with is affecting other people. Your hypocrisy, how you say all the right things about Christianity, but then you refuse to live any of it. That's affecting other people. All of it does. When I was a teenager, I got into church, about 16 years of age, and I had been saved young, but I really got serious about the Lord. I remember before I got serious about the Lord, I I was attending off and on. I'd go off and on, and I've told you the story about this young man before. There was a young man in the teen department at that time who was always extremely kind to me. Every time I'd go there, he was kind, he was outgoing, he, was, uh, uh, he just had a great spirit. He was, I mean, if you want to talk about sold out for Jesus Christ, this guy was. He had surrendered at a young age, 13, 14 years of age, to be a missionary. He said, I, I, I know God wants me to go to the mission field. He wants me to go to other countries and witness and tell people about Christ. That, that is what God's will for my life is, and I'm absolutely going to do that. And he, he had that down. I mean, he had surrendered his life years before. He was doing all the right things. I mean, he would have been like, you know, the, the, the teen that everybody would have just been like, hey, that guy's got it together. His family was in our church, and I remember going, and I would go off and on. I started working a job, and, and I'd get off work, and I'd go with my mom, and, and so I was kind of getting more involved, and, I, and I, I would see him there, and I, he'd always come talk to me. He'd always try to get me involved. He'd always invite me to teen activities. Just a really good kid. I mean, and he was, and he was humble, and he was sincere. You could just tell. 
And just a great kid. And I, I remember coming back when I, when I finally got into church and God really got a hold of my heart. And I said, okay, I'm getting involved. And I'm going to start going faithfully. I remember getting in and I, I talked to one of my friends at church. I said, hey, where's so-and-so? And he said, oh, man, you know, it's, it's just the saddest thing. He said, we don't know what happened. But the dad got upset about something. He was working in the sound booth. It's you sound guys. It's always you. I'm just kidding. But he was working in the sound booth, and he didn't like the way the pastor wanted things run. Or he, got, he wanted to have more control. There, there was some issue. And he said, so you know what? He just all of a sudden yanked his family out of church. And I said, you know, even in my young years, I was like, well, what church are they going to? You know, I'm sure there's, there's got to be another church they can go to. He said, man, I don't think they're going anywhere. I said, well, that doesn't make sense. I had two kids, and the older teenage guy was in the youth department. He was doing really well. I don't understand. And, and so I literally did not see that kid for maybe a year. The next time I saw him, he went from wearing, you know, suit, tie, joy on his face. Now he's in a dark black trench coat in summer. Now he's got bags under his eyes. Now he's coming back and he's like, hey guys, good to see you. He, he, the most insecure kid you've ever met. I remember me and my friend, you know, we, we were at that time we were working and, and then we'd get off work and we'd go to the gym. We'd lift weights, we'd play basketball and, and uh, then come every day, just do this whole thing. And he came in and he's like, oh, you guys lift weights? Yeah, I can bench 400 pounds. And we're like, no. <laughs> we'll, be, we'll be kind, but that, that's, that's a lot of weight. But we, we were, we're not going to say anything. But he was so insecure. Like, he just, I, I can do that. Yeah, I, 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 could, I could play basketball. I could, I could probably, you know, even bench, I could probably bench like 500, 600. And we're like, we're not comparing. We're just happy to see you, guy. And, and, and so we talked to him, and, you know, he was just, you could just see the joy drained out of him. So then, you know, I come back after my first year of college. I'm delivering mail. I was a postal worker my first year after coming back during the hot summers in Illinois, walking 13 miles a day. And I've told you the story before. He comes up in a car. And I, and I look at this guy. They say, hey, can you give us directions? And the window rolls down and cigarette or marijuana, something kind of smoke comes out. And I look in there. And this kid who was, he was a solid, solidly built kid. He's skinny, he's a skeleton, his face is pale, black under his eyes, he's with a girl that looks, I mean, I don't mean this in a mean way to judge, they look like they had just come from a, some kind of drug situation, needles and stuff. And I didn't even recognize him. And I told him, and, and, but there was a recognition between he and I, like we know each other. And so I told them where to go, and as he pulled off, I recognized who it was, it was that young man. And I began to think back, how did that guy get there? How did we kind of switch places? I was never as far, bad, as far down the road as him, but I was out of the will of God. I was out of church and everything, and we just kind of switched. And I began thinking, how did that happen? And I traced it back to, oh, yeah, I remember the time that his dad got upset at church. I remember the time that his mom got upset at church. I remember the time that they yanked their kids out of church and decided not to go to church. You know what happened with that? He was collateral damage. He was collateral damage. We just came through missions month. We should have been having him in as a missionary we support. But instead, I'm wondering today if he's still alive. Why? Because of the collateral damage of somebody else's decision. Now, I want to say today, there is collateral damage that you can cause. 
But I want to say, secondly, there is collateral, collateral damage that others can cause you. There's collateral damage that others can cause you. We, we have all caused collateral damage. We've all hurt others with our sin. Yeah, I mean, you, you may not be able to identify it. You may not be able to quantify it. But we have all hurt other people with our sin. But also, we have all probably been affected by the sins of others. Haven't we? We've been affected by the sins of others. And some of you in here have been affected more so by the sins of others than other people. Some people have really gone through it. And we live in a wicked world where those closest to you can do terrible things to you. There are people in this church who have been collateral damage of someone else's sins. You were treated wrong. You were abused. You were neglected. You were resented. You were slandered. You were attacked. You were this. You were that. You were this. You were that. And you have, you have felt what it is like to be damaged by someone else's sin. And we've all been there. Now, I will say this. I do not believe that we ought to live the victim lifestyle. That does not mean, though, that we are not victims of something. But I do not believe that God wants us to live a victim lifestyle. I watched a news story probably four or five months ago that just shook me to my core. And just because it was involving a pastor, but, you know, and I'm a pastor, so it just really just was a big warning. You know, just this, just never, never get complacent. And I watched this story, and uh, <clears throat> I think it was on Daily Wire or something. And, and so what happened is, it was, this was a church in Illinois, Indiana, something like that. The pastor had been there forever, you know, and, and, and uh, he, he comes up to the pulpit, and he's giving an invitation. You can watch the video. He's giving an invitation, and it was really kind of a one, two, three, repeat after me prayer. He's like, if you're out here today, you want to go to heaven, just say this. Say this in your heart. Dear Jesus, I want to be saved. Amen. And it was just kind of like... And, and he was just teaching his lesson and stuff, and then he got done, and I was like, well, I was already judging that, you know, as a pastor. That was bad. He should have done it better. Anyway, and so he sends me, he says, oh, and I, and I do have another announcement, everybody, just real quick, uh, if you want to sit down. He said, I did just want to come forward, and, uh, and he was kind of casual. And he's like, I just want to come forward and say, and just admit to you that um, I had an affair that went on for way longer than it should have when I was a younger man. And uh, I, I had this affair, I repented, I have no excuse for it, it was wrong, and uh, I did repent about it, and I just told, you know, our deacons about it, and so, you know, for a while I'm going to step down, and then he, he said step down, then he corrected himself, I'm going to step aside from ministry. Now I will tell you, stepping down and stepping aside is two different things. And he said, oh, I'm going to step aside from ministry. He said it twice. He said step down twice and then corrected himself twice. I'm going to step down from ministry. I'm going to step aside from ministry for a while and focus on my family. He's a 65-year-old man, 66-year-old man. And he said, you know, this is, this is uh, you know, just something that I think, you know, you, you, you got to admit. And you got to come forward and, and repent and get right about it. And so that's what I'm doing, and I want to make it right with everybody. The crowd applauded him. They gave him a standing ovation. And I'm watching this in disgust. And I'm like, what? And so then, two people stand up in the back of the church. Walk down the aisle. As he's coming down and people are flocking around this pastor to, to give him a hug. Two people walk down the aisle. A young man and a young lady walk up on the platform. And they say, excuse me, real quick, please hear us out. Please hear us out. You've loved our family. Give us, give us a little bit of time. Everybody sits down. It's, and the young lady begins to talk and says, I am the young lady that this pastor had an affair with. But here's what he didn't tell you. 
I was 16 years old when he began the affair. And he began abusing her, I was 16 year old. He was 37, she was 16. Her husband's standing there with her. She's now 40 years old and the husband's there. And you know what It came out also? That he didn't come forward. The deacons found out about it. Someone in the church said something and they confronted him with it and then after they confronted him, he confessed. He never said how old she was and he never told them that for seven years it continued. Now, I have a lot of thoughts about this. I have a lot of thoughts about both sides of this equation, but they don't matter right now. But, for the, but just telling you the facts of the story. That this is what happened. And the young lady standing up there, can I tell you something? The whole spirit of that church service changed. Ladies began saying, is it true? He, and so he comes back up on the platform and he's just standing there. I've apologized. You know, we've made this right. We've loved your family. What more can we do? His, his adult son comes up and is almost like aggressively standing there trying to get them to go down. And it is just the ugliest sight. And people in the audience, some of them are just like, you know, oh, it's no big deal. You know, okay, he confessed it. But there are some people that are, has some sense in their head. And we're saying, is this true? And this changes, it, well, first of all, it should have changed everything before, but then when they found out more information, this changes everything now. And now they're thinking, are there char charges filed? And all this kind of stuff. You know what happened to that church? In one service, it was, it was just divided and destroyed in one service. Unbelievable. In one service, because of a man's sin that happened, that he just thought he could cover it over, no big deal. Now, every single person in that church has been affected by it. I wonder how many people walked out in church and said, I'm tired of hearing these stories. I'm done with church. I wonder how many people said, you know what? I don't think God could even be real if his men are doing this. Can I just encourage you? The best of men are still men at best. The best of women are still women at best. And can I just say, you don't ever put your faith in a person. You put your faith in Jesus Christ. You don't ever quit on church because of a person. You, you, you know, it, it's, you're not here because of me. You're not here because of Brother Weldon. You're not here because of Brother DeHaro. You're not here because of my wife. You're not here because of any other person in this church. You ought to be here because of Jesus. And so if you're here for that reason, then you won't quit on God no matter what happens. You'll, you'll still stay faithful with God. Now look, I think the people should have probably left that church. But can I tell you, there was a, there's probably a better church nearby. You know, so you don't quit on God because of that. But their, their whole life, this thing affected everybody. Everybody. That lady was collateral damage. Her husband was affected. Her children will be affected. She had any. Every person in that church that got hurt by the sins of that leader was collateral damage. So you've been hurt. You quit on God. You, you've, you've been hurt by a spouse or by your parents. Do you just live in bitterness? No, there is healing in Jesus Christ. That's, that's what God wants. He doesn't want you to live that way. He can take a victim and make them a victor. God can do that. That's why if your faith is in men, you have no hope. But if it's in Christ, you always have hope. So put your faith in him. But there's a collateral damage that you can cause, and there's a collateral damage that others can cause you. But I want to say lastly today, there is also... It, this process works in reverse, too. What I want to say is there is collateral blessings. There are collateral blessings that can affect you and others through you. There are collateral blessings 
that can affect you and others through you. You sow bad seeds, you reap bad, but if you sow good seeds, you reap good fruit. Potiphar, the Bible says, was blessed. Why? Because of Joseph. Joseph was blessed because of his actions, but it was a collateral blessing that extended out from Joseph and blessed everyone around him. Laban in the Bible was blessed because of Jacob. And Laban said, I've learned by experience the Lord has blessed me for your sake. And because of you, Jacob, because you're the man that God wants you to be and you're living right, God's blessing you, but I'm in the bubble with you. And because I'm close, I'm getting some of those blessings too. And I think that's an encouraging thought, that we can be blessed because of others and others can be blessed because of us. You know, I was telling this to one of our, our, our newer guys uh, this last week. I was saying, you know, that, that his life has just been turned around for the Lord. And I told him, look, living for the Lord will be a grenade blast of blessings for those around you. And it ought to be. That's a wonderful thing. So can I encourage you today to keep sowing good seeds and, and keep living right and keep confessing sin and keep getting right with God. Because God can bless others through you, but also God can bless you through others. You know, we underestimate what God can do with our lives. God can bring good out of a bad situation. That's what my God can do. My God overcame this world. My, my God can do that. My God gives us victory over sin and death. Do you believe today that all things work together for good to them that love God? To them that are the called according to his purpose? Do you believe that? I'll tell you this, I'm almost done. I, the teens heard this story at youth conference. I, I, uh, I preached at a, a teen youth conference I think it was last June. And I told a story about a missionary family that came through our church when I was 17. The missionary came through, and he preached a message. I still have it on cassette tape. That's how long ago it was. And, uh, and he preached a message. I remember taking my Bible. I still have a signature in my office in my, in my high school Bible. I took my Bible up to him, and he signed his signature. He put a signature in there, and he put a, a, a Bible verse, you know, just... Uh, 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 his life verse. And I remember doing that as a teenager and be all excited. This guy's going to a foreign country. He's getting a missionary. He preached a message. It was great. I told the story at youth conference that I found out that in 2013, I think it was, on Valentine's Day, he murdered his wife. He had been having an affair with a 21 or 23-year-old person from the country that he was a missionary to. He had children, several children, and uh, so on Valentine's Day, he tried to make it look like an accident, but he went to his, he, they were back in the States, he had, they had been trying to pay to get the, his mistress to the States, uh, his wife did not know, but he was, he was doing it because he wanted to, uh, you know, just to continue to disciple her, and, uh, and, and that's what he said, so they bring her to the States, and, and uh, so that he can continue that affair, but really he wrote letters and said he wanted to replace his wife with her. She was not a party to this, but uh, so he decides to make it look like a home invasion. He has a fight with his wife on Valentine's Day. He stages a home invasion, but you know, you're just not going to get away with that. It's just not, not good. He wasn't smart enough to do that. He gets caught. He's in jail now. He's in jail for the next 80 years, which, you know, not going to make it, I don't think, those 80 years. But you know what? It's just, it's the saddest story of I, I still have that signature. I still have that, that cassette tape of what he preached. I began thinking about the collateral damage that that caused. His wife is in heaven. His children lost their mother and dad in the same day. 
So anyway, I get, I get done with that uh, message, and I didn't say his name, like I didn't say the name here. I tried not to give a lot of details. But a couple, uh, uh, 14 months later, 14 months later, so this is just a couple months ago, uh, my wife gets a message on Instagram. I guess you can send someone a message, direct, direct message on Instagram. And it is from this man's son. And she said, my wife said, uh, I need to have you read something. And I was like, that doesn't sound good. And I sat down and she said, um, do you know the name? And she said the name. And I said, well, the last name sounds, she said, yeah. It's the man's son that you talked about at youth conference. And I was bracing for it. I was like, all right, here it comes. And so he starts off, this young man, I think he's you know, 23 or something. He starts off by saying, I was at a teen camp. And people uh, heard his testimony or whatever. And so they basically uh, said, some of the teenagers said, we've heard this story before. Somebody told this story at a teen camp, at a, at a youth conference. So he spent some time researching it, and he found it was me. And I began to feel so bad, I was thinking, I did not say the name on purpose. I was not trying to cause pain. And he, and he texted us and said, but I want you to know, it's okay that you told the story. And I was like, wow, okay, well, that's good to hear. And because uh, I was thinking, you know, I'm about to get it from this young man that, that heard this from other people. How dare you, that type of thing. But he said, you know what? He said this in the message. He said, don't be afraid to use my story. Don't be afraid because God's grace is sufficient. And I read through the text, and it wasn't how dare you say this and all of that. It was, I want you to know that I am serving God. And I just was blown away. My wife gave him my cell phone number. He texted me. And I apologized. I, I would never want to give the information away. By the way, it was on Dateline NBC. It's not like I was under a rock somewhere. But I still didn't want to produce a curiosity in people. But, but he said, it's okay. I just wanted you to know that, that God's grace was sufficient in my life. And I, I was at that youth camp serving in ministry. I began to think about how, how if, if that's, what, that's what my God can do. He can take a bad situation. He can take someone that was affected, the, the collateral damage of someone else's terrible decision and work a trophy of grace out of that person. I thank God that that young man is making it. That's what my God can do. Can your God do that? Well, we serve the same one, right? Can yours do that? I close. I just saying, you may be thinking today, well, pastor, you don't understand. I can't forgive and move on. I can't just forgive people. I can't let things go. Think with me for a second, please. And this is the important part. In our story that we read, seven innocent men were hanged so that God's justice could be satisfied. Can I tell you what those seven innocent men hanging for someone else's crimes reminds me of? Reminds me of my truly innocent Savior who was hung on a cross for my crimes and for your crimes. You know what he said on the cross? He said, Father, forgive them. And if Jesus, who truly was innocent, could say, Father, forgive them, and not live with the bitterness of being literal, the collateral damage of every person that's ever lived sin, if he could say that, I think we could too. We've all been hurt. We've all been the ones doing the hurting. 
And I wonder today, which one does God want you to deal with? Is there something that, is there somebody that's being affected by your sin? And you need to stop, you need to confess, you need to repent. Is there somebody being affected by your unforgiveness? And are there other people being affected because of the blessings of God upon your life? I wonder if there's people in your life that bring blessings upon you just because you're near them. And then I would just be remiss if I didn't say this. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, the wrath of God will abide upon you because you're going to have to pay for your sin. But Jesus paid for it for you so you wouldn't have to. And you can accept him as your Savior today. Our Father, I thank you for the word of God. Lord, I pray today that if there is sin in our lives, that we'd recognize that it does.